Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, and welcome to this Step 1 Study Smarter series from Inside the Boards. My name is Stuart Bryant, and I'm one of the hosts and co-founders of Inside the Boards. And today what I'd like to do is go through a, a few questions with one of our practice question rounds. Uh, it's part of our Study Smarter series, and these are powered by our friends at StatPearls. So these are just random questions that we'll go through uh, in no particular order. These seem to have a slight predilection towards anatomy, though. Bear in mind. I hope you really enjoyed this past week where we were covering genetics material. Next week, we'll be moving on to embryology, and I hope you uh, are looking forward to that topic as I am. So without further ado, let's do a few of these questions. Our first question is for anatomy. A patient is stabbed in the abdomen. An emergency room exam reveals that the knife has penetrated the peritoneum and the patient requires surgery. Which of the following is the most appropriate time for the administration of antibiotics? Is it A, preoperatively, B, intraoperatively, but only if a hollow viscous injury is discovered, C, postoperatively, if the patient becomes septic, D, antibiotics are not necessary if the wound is clean. So the correct answer here is going to be preoperatively. You've got a patient, they've been stabbed. We don't know how clean the knife might be, um, but it's penetrated them. And for all you know, that is going to cause an infection. It may not cause an infection as soon as they've been stabbed, but giving antibiotics um, before they have surgery is going to reduce their chances of having the infection the most. So what we're getting at here is that all penetrating injuries to the abdomen are violating the abdomen, the peritoneum, and that is considered to be a sterile space. And by doing so, they're creating a potential to seed an infection. Thus, we tend to give antibiotics as soon as possible. Other things to think about more clinically, but uh, still could be pertinent for step one is that uh, in addition to antibiotics, a patient's going to need uh, resuscitation, and they may even need blood products. Uh, so they could go in that direction with these questions as well. The extent of the injury depends upon the, the length of the knife, the entry point, and the direction that the force was applied. These are particularly good for anatomy questions to tell you, to have you have a person stabbed in a certain location and they want to know like what structure is at risk. So being able to consider a, a knife or a some sort of projectile or sharp object penetrating into the skin and then what's going to be beneath that and potentially uh, deeper and deeper. Other important factors for a, uh, a stabbing victim are going to be to keep them warm and you're going to give them warming blankets or warm fluids to try to limit hypothermia. If the patient has no real significant injuries, we just only need to give them a couple doses of antibiotics, uh, and that can be as little as one dose. 
some surgeons um, may give multiple doses over the course of a, a 24 hour period just to ensure that the patient doesn't have any infections. Another important factor here is if you have a patient has been stabbed or has some sort of penetrating injury, another thing we consider is to do a tetanus booster. And that's really going to depend on when their last tetanus booster was. So the next question here is a physiology question. A 65-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a right forearm laceration from a clean cooking knife he dropped 20 minutes ago. Their laceration is 4 centimeters long by 1 centimeter deep and does not appear to have injured any neurovascular structures. The patient is up to date on his tetanus vaccine and requires sutures. The blood has stopped bleeding by the time it is being washed with normal saline. Which of the following is most accurately going to describe the microscopic changes that are occurring in the wound? Is it A, angiogenesis begins taking place. Also during this time, fibroblasts begin to replace the inflammatory mass. B, neutrophils activated through the complement cascade begin to phagocytose dead tissue. C. Contracture of smooth muscles and tissue compressing small vessels. Platelets also begin to aggregate, activating the clotting cascade to produce initial platelet plugs. Or is it D? Collagen is remodeled from type 3 to type 1. So the patient here has gotten a stab wound and now they are experiencing bleeding that has effectively stopped on its own. The question is asking you to figure out what is going to be the, the microscopic change occurring that's going to allow for this to happen. So the easy way to do this is to just kind of go through the coagulation mechanism in your head. So uh, first step, they're going to have a cut and then what's going to happen is immediately after the, the cut occurs, there's going to be vasoconstriction. This will happen quickly. It's going to be caused by the release of cytokines. And this vasoconstriction will temporarily uh, decrease the blood flow and it'll help with the pressure in the vessels. The next step is then going to be uh, platelet plug formation. Endothelial cells will release thromboxane and thromboxane will help to aggregate platelets. Prostacycline is also a, a potent platelet inhibitor and uh, will cause vasodilation. Other factors that get released during vessel injury include uh, von Willebrand's factor and tissue thromboplastin. Both of these help with sealing leaky vessels and allowing platelet aggregation. As the vessels repair, the blood clot and platelet clump is broken down by plasmid. So kind of going through that, you can make the, the jump that the answer here is going to be C, and that what's going to happen is you're going to see contracture of smooth muscles and uh, the tissue to compress the small vessels. Platelets will also begin to aggregate, and you'll see activation of the clotting cascade to produce the initial platelet plug to stop the bleeding in this patient's injury. The next question is another anatomy question. A 16-year-old boy complains of pain and swelling in the right elbow 
after sustaining a fall on his outstretched arm. In the emergency department, the child is crying and keeping the right elbow in a flexed position. Physical exam reveals bruising of the elbow and tenderness over the supracondylar ridge. He is unable to flex the index finger and thumb actively. There is no vascular defect. Which of the following nerves is most likely to have been injured? Is it A, the posterior interosseous nerve? B, the anterior interosseous nerve? C, the ulnar nerve? Or is it D, the musculocutaneous nerve? So presumably this patient has a fracture of their elbow. Without getting into what this fracture is, it could be a supracondylar fracture um, of the humerus, um, which can occur when you have a child who falls on an outstretched hand. And then you might see what is a, a, an extension type injury where the most distal fragment of the humerus is kind of extended um, or stuck in that positioning. So if they have an injury to their distal humerus, you're going to think of radial nerve, ulnar nerve, or um, median nerve injuries. And then musculocutaneous is probably less likely in your mind, so I would get rid of that answer. The answer choices here really direct you to the interosseous nerves. So the anterior interosseous nerve is um, going to be a branch of your median nerve, and it supplies the, the flexor pollicis longus muscle and the flexor digitorum profundus. Those are for the, the index finger, the hand, the thumb. Typically, this is kind of referred to as an OK sign pattern, where the patient is able to flex the uh, the DIP of the index finger and the interphalangeal joint of the thumb to create an OK sign. And if they are not able to do that, that means the AIN has been injured. In this case, what you see is the patient's unable to flex their thumb and index finger, so you think of an AIN injury or answer choice B. So like I said, uh, the AIN is a branch of the median nerve and it will affect the muscles of the thumb and the index finger. Most AIN injuries are related to supracondylar fractures and are a neuropraxia type injury and expected to recover with fracture. Um, most supracondylar fractures are, occur in children um, who fall on an outstretched hand and, and have an extension type injury. Ulnar nerve injuries are commonly seen with flexion type uh, supracondylar fractures and these may be more iatrogenic. Usually you actually see these in patients who just had a supracondylar fracture and then they had a, a surgery to repair it with a pin placed into the, into the bone to hold it in place. So if a patient has a, an injury to their ulnar nerve after a surgery, you can think of the supracondylar fracture pinning or the surgery as being the cause of the, of the injury. The next question is a pathology question. A former boxer who's repeatedly punched in the head during his career dies all of a sudden. Which of the following is the most likely finding to be found on autopsy of his brain? Is it A. Somoma bodies? B. Hirano bodies? C. Neurofibrillary tangles? Or D. Negri bodies?
for a step one boards question on a boxer who's been hit in the head, you're going to immediately think about dementia pugilistica, I believe is what it's called, where they've basically been so beat up that they've gotten brain trauma from their, their fighting career. That doesn't get you to the answer here because what the question is actually asking is what you're going to find on an autopsy of their brain. The first choice here is answer choice A, and that is somoma bodies. Somoma bodies are, they are a pathology finding of like little calcium deposits, and you're going to see them more like um, in tumors, and I typically think of papillary thyroid carcinoma, definitely carcinomas, some meningiomas. Meningiomas, I think, are also a good one to remember. And then I'm sure there are many others, but probably not as important. Prolactinomas may have somoma bodies as well. Either way, you don't really see that since this is more of like a, a cancer kind of finding. It's less seen in a, a patient with like a traumatic brain injury or traumatic encephalopathy kind of picture. Uh, the next one is Hirano bodies. And Hirano bodies are basically inclusions of like actin and these are seen in a few degenerative disorders like um, Alzheimer's and you may see it in ALS but it's not a one it's not a highly tested fact but it's not the thing you're going to typically find in someone's brain. I don't really have a good answer for why Hirano bodies aren't correct. I can tell you about Negri bodies. Negri bodies are what you see in patients who have rabies. So when you have a rabies infection, you get these inclusions in the nerve cells, and they may kind of have this like rod-like structure, I guess, which you think of. You think of these as like eosinophilic inclusions that are found in the cell, and particularly nerve cells, and these mean that a patient likely has rabies virus. Also not the situation with this patient. The correct answer here is C, neurofibrillary tangles. These are going to be more specific for a like chronic traumatic encephalopathy kind of patient. Someone who received many punches to the head is going to have a lot of problems, but their brain in injury may include things like dementia, personality changes, they may have speech problems. They may even have tremors and gait problems, uh, almost like Parkinsonism. Autopsies on the, the brain of boxers usually reveals axonal injury that's diffuse, and you'll see neurofibrillary tangles in that case. The distribution of these tangles are different than you see in the other diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. The brain of patients with Parkinson's uh, will also often have a lot more atrophy of the neurons and the cerebellum and the corticospinal tract that make up kind of pathognomonic findings in Parkinson's. Uh, these patients typically die very young when this happens. Average onset of these symptoms can be one to two decades after uh, the start of a boxing career. Some research suggests that there's about 20% of boxers being affected by these kind of injuries. The next question is another anatomy question. A basketball player falls and twists his right ankle. It is believed that he suffered an ankle sprain. 
Which of the following ligaments is the most commonly damaged in an ankle sprain? Is it A, the anterior talofibular ligament? B, the deltoid ligament? C, the calcaneofibular ligament? Or is it D, the posterior talofibular ligament? So the answer here is what's the most common ligament injured? So this is an easy uh, first order kind of question. It's usually the anterior talofibular ligament. That's the ligament that runs uh, on the anterior portion of the foot or the dorsum of the foot and is going to be connecting the fibula and the talus. When you have a inverting motion of your ankle, you're more likely to put strain on that ligament and cause a sprain. But the ankle joint is stabilized by three ligaments mainly, the, the lateral ligament complex, the medial deltoid ligament, and the syndesmotic ligaments. Most ankle sprains, like I said, involve the lateral ankle, and that's um, going to include the anterior talofibular ligament, which is the most commonly injured. The ligament originates from the lateral malleolus, and it attaches to the talus. A positive anterior drawer test in an injured ankle is evidence of an anterior talofibular ligament sprain. The posterior talofibular ligament is the least common injured ligament in the lateral ankle, and that is behind uh, these other ligaments. The next question is a physiology question. A patient undergoes thyroid surgery. The surgery is uneventful and there's minimal blood loss. That night, the patient complains of tingling in her hands and muscle cramping. Which of the following initial therapies should be started? Is it A, thyroid hormone, B, oral vitamin D, C, intravenous calcium, or D, a CT scan of the head to rule out brain injury? Patients that recently have thyroid surgery are at a risk of having a parathyroid surgery that they didn't mean to. So what you may see in patients is they've gotten, they get numbness and tingling in their hands. They get these cramping sensations and this uh, twitching where you see that they've had a thyroid surgery, you've removed the parathyroid, and now their calcium is low because you've taken that out. So peripheral signs of hypocalcemia, those include checkoff sign and trousseau sign. In checkoff sign, you tap the cheek and that produces twitching. And in trousseau sign, you inflate a blood pressure cuff around the arm and you'll see that this causes a, a numbness and tingling in the nerves of the forearm. Besides thyroid surgery, other reasons you could have this is from pancreatitis uh, that causes a inability to absorb calcium and that affects your calcium and lowers it. So by not having the right pancreatic enzymes and things, you will you potentially decrease absorption of calcium across the duodenum and then in the jejunum as well. Other signs of hypocalcemia include diarrhea. If they're pregnant, they may go into preterm labor. Uh, you may see tetany and muscle spasms. And when you see a patient that has a low calcium, Clinically, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to correct it 
uh, with intravenous like calcium gluconate. So the answer here is going to be C for IV calcium. Thyroid hormone is probably not a good answer because it's not usually related to tingling and muscle cramps initially. Vitamin D might help with calcium, and that could be something that you're thinking about. But this patient has symptomatic uh, low calcium, and you need to treat it faster than just giving them some vitamin D and hoping that helps balance them out. And then a CT scan to rule out a brain injury could be a good option if they had an altered mental status and you noticed that they were only experiencing these symptoms on one side, for instance. And as long as you're not seeing, you know, these, this patient doesn't have a focal neural deficit. Uh, so that's going to be less likely. And, and, you know, maybe you correct the calcium too, and then there's still something wrong. In that case, maybe you do want to get a CT scan as well. Well, thank you for listening to this episode today. As always, check back later for more episodes from the Study Smarter series. Like I said, next week we're going to be covering uh, embryology, so look forward to that. Like I said, we'll be trying to continue these practice question rounds each week. Uh, they're powered by StatPearls, just to give you some general overview of content. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It's a big help for us. And I mentioned a lot of physiology topics today, so one way that you could really help your physiology knowledge is to go over to our physio podcast that's produced with the help of our, our friend Greg Rodden and uh, sponsored by Physio. And they have some great content to really help drive home many of these physiologic points. The best way to access any of our content is going to be through the Inside the Boards app. And that's available in the App Store or online. You can download it for free and get access to our podcast as well as other content. And if you get a subscription, you'll be able to use our all audio cue bank. One of the things that we're doing with the Study Smarter series is we're converting many of the older episodes into playlists and putting them on the app kind of in a more user-friendly fashion. The other thing I think we're going to do is with these practice question rounds is they're going to start up as being on the podcast, but over time, as we continue to do them, we'll start taking them down and we'll catalog them on the podcast app as well. Lastly, if you have time, check out our Facebook or other social media and subscribe or like us. Uh, it really helps get the, the word out. And speaking of getting the word out, a lot of people are studying for their board exams right now. So just sharing us with your friends uh, who are studying may be a really big help for them as well. As always, happy studying and see you next time.